This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Every newsroom I worked in had huge screens on each wall with real-time charts showing how many people were reading stories on the site. Then every month reports would go around showing which journalist was the most clicked on for that period. And even if it felt taboo to admit it, everyone wanted to be top. When it came to drawing in traffic, upstarts like Gawker, BuzzFeed, Vice and the Huffington Post became the masters of that particular skill, leaving legacy news brands lagging behind. But now the tables feel like they've turned, with many of those sites struggling and old school newspapers dominating online news once again. Ben Smith used to be editor-in-chief for BuzzFeed News, was then a media columnist for the New York Times, and now runs global news company Semaphore. He also tracked the highs and lows of the pursuit of clicks in his book Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. And to add to that, he's now a guest in The Bunker. Hi, Ben. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me on. Ben, so when did you join the race to go viral yourself, and why did it draw you in? Well, if you were a journalist covering, as I was, politics in the in the mid aughts, this digital space was incredibly exciting. It was a you know yeah. you got away from the sort of constraints and really just the clunkiness of publishing in print and waiting many many hours till anybody could see it. And you had this, and you found this very direct conversation with your audience. And I was yeah. covering New York politics, then national politics in the U.S. But I don't think you were really doing anything called going viral until social media came along. No. And I mean, for, for me, for political reporters, it was Twitter. And, and I, I could feel in, say, come 2010, that instead of writing things on my blog and hoping people would return to it, I was writing things on my blog and hoping to see them travel on Twitter, where all of the people who had been reading my blog had moved and were all talking to each other over there. Did it feel like a way to kind of kick away the, the hierarchy of journalism? Because for me, when I worked in journalism, it felt like a lot of people at the top maybe weren't the the best people. They were just people who'd kind of stuck in and been there for a really long time. And that was the way to, to become successful in news journalism. Did this switch to online there kind of feel like, well, you know what, I can do a better job than these people and I don't have to wait for them to like retire to be able to do that? Maybe it was partly that. And I do think that sort of people who might have wound up with kind of having marginal careers, like I think of myself that way, Some, like it probably would have wound up at an alt-weekly or something, wound up on a more central track as the alternative, the digital space became central. But no, I actually think it was more driven by an audience that was pretty alienated, both, you know, we're real normal people, we're all just talking to each other on the internet all day by that, and emailing and IMing and things like that. But media companies really weren't. They were putting things in the internet, you know, 12, 16 hours after they happened because that's when they happened to hit the printing press, yeah. for instance. And so it was more, I think for me as a journalist, an opportunity to talk to my audience where they actually were yeah. in a very straightforward way. Yeah, I remember newspapers I worked for still having teams of staff who just uploaded the print edition at like a, a time just because that's what you did. 
And that's, you know, that's only like three years ago that I was working for a newspaper still. And it just felt, yeah, completely uh, antiquated in that way. I mean, for you, you went from BuzzFeed then to somewhere about as legacy as it gets with the New York Times. And then you've gone back to launching your own website. Did you miss, you know, the new school way of doing things? You know, when you went to the New York Times, did it feel like sort of a, a shift change in culture for you there? Um, you know, the Times absorbed a lot of the technology and the lessons and the culture of the internet. They were a little slow to adapt it, but in a way, I think they're obviously the most successful digital news company there is. Yeah. Um, they do have a, I mean, they're very traditional and connected to their own neuroses, but I think they, unlike other publications really have, you know, recentered on the internet for sure. When did this move to traffic chasing really start you spoke about a a kind of email about nike early on is this the inception of when this all began for you there was i mean i think like a lot of developments in media and culture it really started with a scene in downtown manhattan of people who knew each other and lived near each other and worked with each other and dated and dated the same people and just like a tiny little went to the same bars a lot of whom were sort of playing around with these new blogging technologies. Blogging sounded like this crazy new thing. And many of whom saw them kind of as toys or as fun projects or as kind of in a way to to critique the mainstream media. And I wound up writing about two people in particular, Jonah Peretti, who created BuzzFeed, and Nick Denton, who created Gawker, because they weren't the only or necessarily even the most important figures of that moment, but they were ones who really saw clearly that this was this technology wasn't just going to tweak the old printing world but was going to totally upend it and swallow it and they had very different ideas about what what that would mean um but they were both obsessed with traffic for nick traffic was a way of sort of unmasking hypocrisies and saying the traffic says what people are really interested in if they're interested in pornography we'll give them pornography and not be ashamed about it the way yeah you know, traditional publishers are. Jonah Peretti, who founded BuzzFeed, had this other very weird experience that um, that you refer to. And he'd come up like as a, it's a funny out-of-date word, but as a culture jammer, if you remember what that means. <laughs> like right. a sort of anti-corporate internet prankster from the 90s. Okay. Um, he first kind of understood what it was to go viral when he, as a stunt, when he was in grad school. Um Nike had launched something where you could customize shoes on the internet, which was then really novel. And you could put in a word and they'd mail you a shoe with that word. And he put in the word sweatshop. And the customer service representative emailed him and said that wasn't within the terms of service. And he got into a long argument with her about the terms of service and this long back and forth, which ended with him saying that he understood they wouldn't make him shoes, but could they send him a photograph of the seven-year-old Vietnamese girl who was assembling them? Um, And, you know, which ended the correspondence. And, you know, he thought this was clever, and so he did what you know young men who'd done something they thought would cl- was clever in the U.S. in that moment did, which he sent it to Harper's Magazine in the hopes that they would publish it, and they didn't. And so he then forwarded it to a few friends because he thought it was funny. And, 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 and within weeks, everyone in the country had seen it, and he was on the Today Show arguing about sweatshops with the spokesman for Nike, and Jonah knew nothing about sweatshops, but did realize, wow, that was a really, something had just happened that felt new. And the notion that this piece of media could be distributed across time zones, across media markets by people who, but from hand to hand and reach a scale that was larger than print or broadcast was really a revelation for him. Yeah, it all seemed to happen kind of by accident to me. Did people like Jonah just sort of get swept up in something perhaps bigger than they realized it was going to be? Yeah, I mean, I think that 
the entire ecosystem took off, but it really took off on the back in particular of Facebook. Yeah. I mean, I think that Jonah had seen the emergence of this new kind of media and, his, and, and had a theory that it would emerge in a lot of different places and that BuzzFeed, his company, would be the place that figured out what sorts of things people shared and how they shared on different platforms and looked across platforms. And I think what happened that surprised us was that really that by come 2014, there's only one platform and it's Facebook and everything else is tiny compared to it. You you mentioned Twitter as well. Do you think it's strange just how much of a focus, for whatever reason, Twitter is put upon when, as you say, Facebook completely dwarfs it? Do you sometimes think we should just cut Twitter out of the conversation to compare to how big it is? No, I think, I mean, I think influence and power and sort of driving culture are pretty core elements of media and news. And Twitter is really, really, was really central for a long time for those. So just, just not for traffic, but was a very influential, important space. Yeah. In that kind of the, you know, the cultural side of it, you talk about how these websites started to drive each other along. Within your book, a main theme to me feels like there is a, there's a kind of macho rivalry about the whole thing. It's, you know, yes. this viral news has kind of come up of, you know, you mentioned kind of young men doing something they think is clever and wanting to get <laughs> attention for it. Would you say that is kind of indicative of both the, the tone of news we have now and how it blew up in the way it did? Um, I mean, I think there was, I mean, there was a sort of a straightforward competitiveness to traffic. There were definitely these very intense personal rivalries. And I mean, Jonah Peretti and Nick Denton in particular were very rivalrous with each other and took a lot of shots at each other. Another place they differed was that Jonah raised a lot of money from venture capitalists and started moving faster and scaling faster with a pool of money that Denton never had and really resented. Did people go for short-term wins, perhaps, you know, due to the, the rivalries that were going on and not think of the long-term implications of the tactics they were using? Well, I think, I mean, I think basically, and certainly for BuzzFeed where I was, there was this sense of, wow, you can just reach this enormous audience on these platforms. And a lot of people saw it. And again, the challenge was it was really one platform, Facebook, to some degree Google, but really mostly Facebook, driving these huge audiences. And the platform had this homogenizing effect where everybody was chasing the same thing. Yeah. And so every website started to look the same. And, and then suddenly, you know, you, it's very easy to kind of lose your identity as a publisher in that. And, and I think and become essentially a feature of Facebook. And I think that is what happened in varying degrees to a lot of publishers. And then Facebook, you know, moved away from that space for its own reasons. And, they, and these publishers were left without, without clear brands, without strong connections to their audience. You mentioned the mullet strategy in your book. Could you explain a little bit of what that means to listeners? Yeah, I think the mullet, I mean, Jonah Peretti, again, who founded Huffington Post um, before he founded BuzzFeed. And Huffington Post was this sort of transitional publication. It called itself the internet newspaper, and it had a sense of itself as, you know, it looked a little like a newspaper and had a sense to some degree that it had the values of a newspaper, but also this new stuff, some of it stapled kind of clumsily together. And it also had a kind of political mission to elect Democrats. And it was progressive. And Arianna Huffington was bringing in famous celebrities who were giving it this air of buzz and centrality, but no one was reading George Clooney rambling about whatever yeah. political thing. Well, it's like John Cusack, so, you mentioned, as like a star yeah, blogger. Cusack's political <laughs> views. Yeah. And so, and so, Jonah developed this strategy, called, which he called the mullet, which was in reference to the haircut. Yeah. Serious up front, party in the back. Which meant that when you first looked at the website, you saw a lot of serious stories about the Iraq war. But if you scrolled down, you would see tons of trashy celebrity content. And yeah. lots of people came in return for that. With, uh, I mean, we, somewhere that we're familiar with here in the UK, is the Mail Online and the sidebar of shame. 
to me, I think it's interesting how they kind of front that side of stuff. They kind of, even on the serious stuff, no matter where you are on the website, the trash is there all the time. Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the male's core identity, and it wasn't trying to, it doesn't try to position itself as some kind of thoughtful intervention in highbrow politics. Is there, was there kind of a, a catch-22 there, though, then, with some of the brands that it was sort of sticking it to the legacy media and saying, we don't want to be within the same constraints, but then, as you say, there was this kind of posturing of wanting to fit in. Was that Huffington Post problem? That it, it wanted to fit in with the Washington Post and the New York Times and still have that kind of glamour to it, but then the people work on it realised, well, that's not the way this is going, so we've got to do something different. And was that hard to to sustain? I mean, I think there's always an element of telling your own story in media. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, the biggest problem, I mean, I would say just because just I think there are, as you sort of keep asking sort of what's the, what did they get wrong? Where was the mistake? And I do yeah. think it's actually a little hard to get your head back into how people were thinking about media then. The question I've gotten a ton is, what was anyone thinking investing all that money yeah. in these companies? Like so much money, hundreds of millions yeah, yeah, yeah. of dollars, um, vastly more than the companies like BuzzFeed Advice are yeah. now worth. And I mean, you really have to go back. And, and the answer really is that people remembered what it had been like at the birth of cable. And entrepreneurs had laid wires in the ground. Yeah. And they'd, just, and they'd realized that to get people to pay to, for these wires to run into their houses, there needed to be stuff on there they wanted to watch. And so they wound up, you know, the people who owned the cables wound up realizing they would have to spend like most of the money they brought in paying, you know, MTV, CNN, yeah. ESPN yeah. for quality content. And... The, a lot of people who were around at the beginning of these internet companies, Ken Lear, the chairman of BuzzFeed, um, Tom Freston, the chairman of Vice, had been central to the creation of MTV. Yeah. And remembered that and thought, okay, here's another set of pipes. The fundamental bet, that was it, was that you know Facebook and YouTube and Snap and Twitter and Pinterest would be customers of yeah. BuzzFeed and Vice and Vox the way a series of cable companies are customers of Viacom, say. And, that that, and that's what, how these would become big companies. And, and you can argue about whether that was delusional or if it just kind of didn't play out that way, but that was, the big, that was the big bet. The New York Times was slow to adapt in some ways, but it did go for a paywall when other places weren't doing that. Does it seem that their faith in the value of journalism paid off for them in the end? Well, you know, I think it's more that you know, things that, you know, things that didn't work then worked. I mean, I think really what happened was that the times went out with a paywall and people just weren't paying for things online. There was no yeah, such yeah. thing as a mobile payment. And then in particular, I would say Spotify and Netflix trained a generation of consumers to pay for things on the internet. And suddenly all sorts of other places yeah. could get people to pay for things. And so I, I actually think it wasn't, I mean, I think often it's true in media that it's, you, you know, you, you, there's no value in being right at the wrong time or in being too early. Yeah. And, there was a period when it wasn't that publishers were idiots, and if only they'd thought of a paywall in the year 2000, they wouldn't have had all these issues. It was that people weren't ready to pay, and there was this decade when there really wasn't a business model. Advertising was collapsing, subscriptions weren't mature yet, and it was a real crisis. And then I think they, they emerged from that on the back of other companies that had, that had created a new system for online payments. Do you see a kind of the news landscape becoming more and more disparate? over the coming years because for example you know we mentioned blogging early on in this conversation and blogging as a word just sounds kind of old school to me but then also every single person in the world seems to be doing a Substack now which yeah. completely surprised me is it actually more so that maybe you know things that are meant to be plucky and different to legacy brands are maybe never meant to be quite as big as them 
and maybe we're actually going to see this sort of a new range of loads and loads of news news outlets that are all sort of smaller and more disparate and separated like that. Is that how you can maybe see things going? Yeah, I mean, I do think that we're headed into this moment of fragmentation. Yeah. I mean, broadly, and the most interesting statistic I've seen lately is that among podcasts, um, a lot of people listen to get their news from podcasts, but if you ask people, do they have a favorite podcast? Not everybody, but a lot of people say they have a favorite podcast. And in yeah. that subset of people, the most likely answer, what's your favorite podcast, unsurprisingly, is Joe Rogan. Um, but what's interesting is that that's only 5%. Yeah. And everything else is smaller. And so you're, it's a market where the largest share is 5% and everything else is a smaller percentage. I mean, it's, and so yeah. people are, it's like a real, like everything is in the middle of the tail. You know, and this comes after, and I don't think by really accident, coming after an era where everyone has been sharing the same sort of quasi-public spaces of Twitter and Facebook, screaming at each other at the top of their lungs about the same things. Yeah. And I think there's clearly this kind of retreat to more fragmented spaces, you know, for better and for worse. Because I think, you know, you will immediately think, oh, that's worrisome because people will be in their alternate realities. But I don't think social media really solved that problem. (laughs) Aside from your own company at the moment, is is there anything you're looking at in the online news space that's really exciting you? Um, I mean, I think there's sort of a generation of companies, maybe starting with Axios or with, and, you know, Puck is part of it, I would say, things like the Ankler on the, and maybe the information on the West Coast that are trying, you know, they're coming up in this new moment, trying to figure it out. Um, all very different from each other, but I think a lot navigating the same landscape of post-social media, email is very important, um, direct relationship with your audience is very important. With your book, you know, it, to me, it feels like you, know, you wrapped it up, but it doesn't feel like a story that has ended in any way also at the moment. If you had to start looking for, you know, a, an additional chapter to the book right now, where would you be? Where would you be looking? Where would you be digging? So, I mean, I think a lot of the book, we didn't talk as much as about politics and about the rise of the right. And something that after the book was published in, in a podcast interview I did, somebody mentioned to me that, that I thought was interesting is another of the main characters in the book is Andrew Breitbart, who was this key yeah. figure of the right. And, um, you know, and, and, and I stopped, you know, he, the, the bit about him ends with his death in 2012. Yeah. Um, but I think there's another book to be written about essentially his, his own very unusual career. And then after his death, like a lot of what is now right wing media, certainly in the US, comes out of a fight for his legacy. Yeah. That's a whole other quite interesting story. Well, Ben, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, it's really, really nice to meet, to meet you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me in The Bunker. The Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>